Good afternoon and welcome to The Money Movement, a show where we explore the issues and ideas driving this brave new world of digital currency and blockchains. Obviously, we are continuing to see this rise of digital currencies and that rise is uh, represented in a lot of different ways, um, major projects uh, that are launching from major technology companies, from major governments, and obviously the continued organic rise of of cryptocurrencies more broadly and stablecoins in particular. And all of that has really accelerated engagement with policymakers and regulators, not just around the world, but especially in Washington. Um, this emergence in particular of global stablecoins and, uh, and, and, and very similar issue, the sort of prospect for central bank money backed digital currency have really intensified policymaker interest. So we've seen that over the last year and that's accelerated. And now amid the COVID-19 uh, induced economic crisis, there's been this accelerated discussion amongst policymakers around the benefits or prospective benefits of digital dollars, uh, which are now also increasingly seen through a national competitiveness lens as advanced nations such as China uh, make blockchain technology and digital currency a foundational infrastructure priority for the future of their economy and uh, arguably their role in the broader global landscape. And so this is portending geopolitical considerations, which are, are certainly also very much on the minds of policymakers today. So the crypto and, and blockchain industry have had a very long history of engagement with policymakers in DC. This dates back to 2013 when the Senate held its first public hearings on virtual currency. And so very excited this week uh, to be joined by several guests who've really been at the forefront of working the digital currency scene in DC uh, over the years. Um, the, a really great lineup today, uh, Kristen Smith, uh, who is the executive director of the Blockchain Association, one of the leading uh, industry associations dealing with blockchain technology in DC. Perry Ann Boring, the founder and president of the Chamber of Digital Commerce, uh, which has been very active in working with industry and policymakers and regulators uh, over several years in DC as well. And John Collins, who is a founding partner at FS Vector, which is a premier advisory firm uh, in the blockchain policy space and fintech more broadly in DC. Uh, very pleased to uh, welcome everyone uh, on the show uh, today. So uh, hopefully we'll have them here in a moment. Hey, Kristen. Hi. How's it going? Hey, Perry. Good. Hello, John. Hey, Jeremy. Hello. All right. You made it. Here's here. <laughs> all right. Good stuff. Um, awesome. I'm really, really psyched to have all you guys on today. Um, you collectively probably know more about uh, what uh, you know, specific Congress people think, what specific Senate staffers think, specific regulators. Uh, you guys are connected to uh, a lot that's happening um, in this space. And so I think you're gonna be able to provide great uh, perspective. Maybe we can just start um, very quickly uh, just for, for the audience, um, for, so people are familiar. Kristen, maybe you could just start, just give us, uh, you know, uh, 30 seconds on, uh, on the Blockchain Association and, and what you guys are up to. 
Yeah, so the Blockchain Association has been around for about two years. We are a trade association uh, that represents companies in the crypto industry, and we work to change federal public policy uh, to have a better regulatory environment um, for the entire ecosystem. Excellent, thank you. Perry Ann? Yeah, hi. Uh, Chamber of Digital Commerce, we're the world's uh, largest trade association representing companies in the blockchain space. We're actually turning six years old this Sunday. So we've been focused on policy issues that impact the digital assets and blockchain uh, community for a number of years. The, uh, the mission of the chamber is to promote the acceptance and use of digital assets and blockchain-based technologies. And we strongly believe that policy regulatory issues are some of the biggest challenges impacting the growth of this ecosystem. So we're based in Washington, DC and spend the majority of our time and resources working on the policy challenges to this space. Excellent. Awesome, thank you. Uh, John. Yeah, FS Vector. Yeah, so FS Vector is where we advise financial technology firms across that sector, but do a lot of work with cryptocurrency and, and blockchain firms, specifically around regulatory um, uh, compliance and political risk. Advise uh, on all those aspects. Excellent. Um, uh, well, great. You guys obviously, uh, you, you guys, uh, you, you know, you know. Uh, all the issues that we're facing. So we're going to dry, we're going to drill into a lot of that today. John, I actually want to start with you um, on something which is um, you know, kind of taking a little bit of a trip down memory lane and it, it sort of sets the stage, which is, um, you know, back in, in, in 2013, you were a, a Senate staffer. Uh, you were working on the policymaking side of the house. And, um, and I think you played a really critical role actually in, uh, in, in galvanizing the Senate to really convene uh, for the first time publicly on virtual currency issues. Um, the, the framing of the issues back then, it was sort of on the back of FinCEN's guidance around uh, you know, the financial crime risk and, and sort of guidance they had given, but there was a lot of activity around then. Um, tell us about that moment in time, what was going on uh, in the Senate with policymakers and, and framing it. And, and then we'll, we'll fast forward in a little bit to kind of where we are today, but it was a, a, certainly a very different lens on it. Yeah, no, I, and again, Jeremy, thanks for, for having uh, me on today. And I will get to you because you played a, a pretty pivotal role in that. But, um, you know, I worked for Chairman Tom Carper at the time. He was then chair of the Homeland Security Committee. Um, I'd been familiar with Bitcoin for a while, but had not bought any, had not done anything with it. Um, and it presented itself in the news in some way or another. I, I can't remember if it was a market crash or a market um, uptick, but you know, it, it was clear that you had on one side of the spectrum, Mark Andreessen saying, this is gonna be the next generation of the internet. And then on the other side saying, it's only useful for crime. And so, you know, how do we mitigate whatever risks are there, but also if it is this next generation technology, um, shouldn't the government be paying attention to it uh, and, and talking about it and sort of working through whatever issues it presents. And I think you, one of the first people that uh, I talked to and you came in with John Betcha, who I don't know where the hell that guy is, but, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, and you know, you came in and uh, I gotta say, you're probably the only person in crypto that looks better today than the day <laughs> you started. Uh, but, um, but yeah, and you were like, you know, here was a very successful, you know, business person and you came in and you're like, look, you're very humble. You're like, look, here's what I'm working on. 
here's why I'm working on it. I think it's like incredibly important. Uh, and so that meant a lot. Uh, and, and so that's why we did that work, talked to leaders like yourself, VCs, law enforcement, and um, just tried to figure out where this thing was going. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> Back then, I know you advise on political risk. Uh, early on, we hired, uh, you know, um, Promontory Financial uh, to, to help assess my, my investors are like, are we going to go to jail if we <laughs> do this? Um, can you help us let us know if this, is this actually going to be legal? Um, but obviously, there's been a, a huge amount of progress there. Um, so obviously, ch things have changed dramatically since 2013. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Uh, Perry Ann, like you said, you got started uh, you know, pretty early in this as well. Um, maybe just describe like you had to make a pitch uh, six years ago, uh, you know, and, and, you know, things like Ethereum didn't even exist. Uh, but like, you know, you had to make a pitch six years ago on why, you know, there needed to be a chamber of digital commerce and why blockchain was going to be important. Like, what was the pitch then? Yeah, well, and like John, I'm a former congressional staffer as well, and I worked for a member who was on the House Financial Services Committee, and so I spent you know, years meeting with all the lobbyists and a special interest group from the financial uh, services space, and uh, I took a, a deep interest in Bitcoin in, in some of the earliest of days, and 2013 was a pretty big year for the industry, for me, and I think for everyone's understanding of where this was going to go. But there were a lot of big things that happened that year that led to the hearings that John um, was talking about. We had the, the takedown of Silk Road, you know, this huge online market where they were selling, uh, buying and selling uh, illegal drugs with Bitcoin. You had the Mt. Gox collapse. At the time, it was the largest Bitcoin exchange in the world. Over 70% of Bitcoin uh, purchases were going through Mt. Gox and they lost um, close to a half a billion dollars in customer funds. I mean, these were huge black eyes for the industry that we're really still recovering from today. And policymakers were you know, reading about this in the news and, and, and felt like they should be doing something. And so we had a couple of hearings. That's when guidance was issued by uh, FinCEN. That was in March of 2013, FinCEN issued their guidance. There were multiple uh, members of Congress that came out and said very negative things about the dangers of this technology. Uh, Joe Manchin called for a, a straight up ban on cryptocurrencies and, and, and Bitcoin. And so, uh, and, and if you read beyond the headlines, the, the idea that there's um, in, inherent security risk with Bitcoin is you know, wrong, but that was a lot of people's understanding that the idea that Bitcoin's only used for to purchase illicit drugs. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously that the, the that was the perception, but was not the reality. And I felt strongly that this industry needed to have professional resources in Washington, D.C. to work with policymakers, to work with people like myself and, and, and John, who you know, advised uh, members of Congress on these types of topics, and make sure that they have the opportunity to truly learn and understand this technology. Yeah. Most of the conversations back then were out of fear of the unknown. They weren't coming from a position of knowledge or understanding. They were coming from a position of fear and anxiety. Yeah, yeah, a, lot so, of, a lot of negative news and damage control and negative yeah. news. We can come back to that uh, given the negative news of yesterday, but I'm sure there's a few phone calls from, from policymakers on, on Twitter hacks. But um, 
it, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I certainly it resonates with me from that time as well. Like you know, any conversation you went into, it just started with like you know, here's all the terrible things, and you know what. The like, are you really a drug man? dealer? Yeah. What are you doing yeah. with all this Bitcoin crypto stuff? Yeah. yeah, I can't talk to you. That's like you know some problem. But um, obviously, um, things have evolved a ton, and and things are getting you know, they're getting very real right now and they're really heating up in a, in a positive way. And I think, you know, uh, you know we, we have global stable coins. We have the rise of digital dollar stable coins like USDC. We have China's uh, uh, digital currency. Uh, we have, you know, crypto really becoming an asset class. And then from a policy perspective, I mean, we've got the Financial Stability Board working on policy recommendations. We've got the Fed very engaged on, on issues here. The OCC and, and Brian Brooks, who's, who's now leading the OCC, putting some of these topics front and center. We've got multiple hearings that are continuing to go on. So really very, very different. And, and sort of the, the policy game and the policy attention is really different now. Maybe, maybe Christian, just to start, you know, what are you seeing? I mean, this this sort of getting real. Um, what are the big, you know, what are the big policy attention focus areas that that are happening right now? Yeah, no, I think you're right. The the focus right now for most policymakers is on something called a digital dollar. I think I think there are a lot of different versions of what that could be. And if you talk to a House Democrat or a Senate Republican, they're going to have different ideas of what a digital dollar is. But there is now consensus among policymakers that it is a good idea to upgrade our money. And I think that that's progress. I think for a long time, cryptocurrencies weren't particularly tangible or useful in their minds, but there is this first step of let's figure out a better way to do payments. Let's figure out a, a way to compete with China. Let's figure out how to bring more people into the financial system and they're seeing a digital version of the dollar um, as a way to do that. So I think the challenge that we have as an industry and what we're trying to talk about is that, you know, yes, China has um, this very uh, committed plan that has come from the top down. And, you know, the American system is different than that, right? What we have here are innovators and entrepreneurs that are going out and experimenting and building and growing. And that it's this marketplace um, of innovative ideas and services that I think is going to keep the U.S. competitive going forward. And it's, you know, kind of incumbent upon us um, at the Blockchain Association and others to to help policymakers understand all of the great work that is going on, like with U.S. DC and and um, and other projects that are out there. So I, I think we have a, a pretty optimistic future. I'm happy to go into more detail on FSB and OCC as well. But um, yeah, let... yeah, I'm cur I'm curious for you know for Perry Ann or, or John, you know, like you know, there's some concrete stuff that's coming down the pike, right? The the OCC is trying to figure out you know how to how are banks going to be? What should banks' involvement be with this? Um, the FSB is going to set guidelines, you know, that's going to ultimately drop down at the at the legislative level or around the world. Like, you know, um, you know, some of this is 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 response to you know what's happening organically in the market. Some of it's ha in response to what Facebook is doing. But um, you know, what what are what are you seeing as as um, tangible policy issues that that may emerge um, out of all this? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, going back to sort of where we started, right, payments was really the only thing we were talking about. I mean, there is this nebulous idea of like, 
these, this is an open protocol, anything could be built, but no one was talking about DeFi or CryptoKitties or stable coins, right? USDC or, or others. So, you know, I think, you know, the, the existential issues continue to be, you know, I think at the supranational level. And I think, again, you know, uh, Kristen and Harry Ann could definitely comment on this, you know, <laughs> Does it affect monetary stability or not? And at what point is that is that you know flipping? And when it ha how do we make sure it doesn't actually get to that point? How do we nurture innovation but actually then not get to a point where we can't plot back? Um, I think that seems to be sort of where the global folks are. Um, and then at the you know at the federal level here, I think you know AML, anti money laundering, terrorist financing, all of those are continue to be serious risks. It's what people seem to know the most about. Um, the securities issues, and then, you know, there's still a lot of really, really important tax issues, and they're only getting more complicated as these mm -hmm. new applications get built. So it's difficult for policymakers to keep up because yeah. they're just so dynamic. Yeah. Uh, Perian, have, have the, has the engagement level changed? Like, you know, g given that these are now, you know, lots of three-letter agencies are now you know, focused on this or whatever, or however you want to describe it. Has the engagement level changed? Are people leaning in more is this uh, is this is this a time that's that there's critical mass that's kind of being built there? Yeah, one of the things that I think is really interesting, we have seen a huge change in the tone of the conversation towards blockchain technology and Congress since the pandemic. And remember, like let's take a step back just a year ago when Facebook had announced the Libra project, and there was this huge pushback to mm -hmm. Facebook, to crypto, to digital assets. And we have seen almost a 180 in that conversation. The pandemic has forced Congress to go digital, which is kind of funny because most yeah. members of Congress, the average age is like 50 to 64 years old. It's a much older generation. They're, they're very traditional. They're now conducting business on their smartphones. They're holding hearings remotely. They're doing things they never thought they would ever have to do. And it's highlighting the need to have strong digital critical infrastructure. And then when Congress passed these stimulus bills, the, the point of that was to get cash in the hands of Americans as fast as absolutely possible. And it forced Congress to re-examine big issues in our financial system. Mm -hmm. And uh, just for example, according to the Fed in 2018, 22% of U.S. households were underbanked. So Congress had this response to the pandemic of distributing these stimulus funds through the banking system, and that highlighted some of the problems, but also the need to ensure that our most vulnerable populations are not being left behind, especially in the middle of a global health pandemic. And that has led to Congress taking a much closer look at things like digital currencies and digital payments and digital dollars and in, in projects like stable coins, like the like USDC. So it's we're in an incredibly um, impressionable moment in history and it's pushing the conversation forward in a very positive yeah. way. There's sort of some, some catalyst moments here. Yeah, go ahead, Kristen. No, well, I was gonna say, I think, um, I think we are, I think Perian's right. We are at um, a sort of a catalyst moment. And, you know, I don't think, if, if you look at the landscape in general, um, 
for policymaking in Washington right now, you know, Congress is almost at a total standstill um, due to the election, unless it's something directly related to the pandemic. So I don't think we're going to see any great legislative victories. But I do think, um, in addition to the, the issues that John mentioned, I do think we're going to see some great stuff out of the OCC. Um, um, you know, we've got um, one of the industry's own over there now who really understands the technology. And I think that there are policy clarifications that can be made that will make crypto less scary to the traditional financial services world. Yeah. Like there will be acceptance of the fact that, um, you know, that that banks should be able to interact with this technology and then hopefully ultimately potentially get a payments charter. I, I think I think what's important to know about the OCC is that it is a very special agency. It's um, it's independent. Um, it's housed under Treasury, but it's independent. So it doesn't have to go through the rulemaking process um, uh, or getting approval from um, the OMB and OIRA and all of the like, traditional regulatory processes that most executive branch agencies have to do. Um, and it also doesn't need a vote of a commission because it, unlike the SEC or the CFTC that have you know five voting commissioners that may disagree, you know this is this is a, a, a one man operation. So um, I think that we'll be able to see some fast action um, you know this this summer and this fall coming out of there. and I think that will help pave the way um, for other regulators over at the SEC and FinCEN, um, to have more comfort with with advancing uh, some, yeah. some clearer, more better policies. That's, that's you know, very very encouraging, and 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 hopefully you know can see some real progress there. I, I think um, one of the themes that's going to come up here uh, a little bit, and it, it has to do kind of where we were, where we are today, but it's just sort of um, you know the education issue here. Like I, I've obviously I spent a lot of time on the Hill over the past seven years, um, and you know. You have conversations and you can kind of see how the education has evolved and, and, and certainly not evenly distributed at all um, and in agencies and 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 in and other places uh, you know I think the, the prior head of the OCC was not at all well versed in, in crypto and now you know Brian Brooks obviously exceptionally versed um, so um, you know this this sort of uh, what I call the education and knowledge gap you know so many of, of in particular policymakers they, they come to the table you know thinking about like, you know, what are the negatives? What are the risks, you know, you know, sort of reacting to news, but, but not necessarily committing the time to, to really understand this as a technology, what it can do for, for uh, you know, for Americans, for, for businesses, for, for others. Um, you know, Perry ann what, what do you see as that education gap uh, and, and, and how do we address it and where, where are we headed with that? Yeah, well, there is a massive uh, technology uh, knowledge gap and, and an even bigger knowledge gap when it comes to things like digital assets and, and blockchain technology. And, and I do think knowledge and education is our strongest tool as a community. And I'll tell you why. I'm going to steal a quote from Jason Weinstein, who's one of our advisory board members at the chamber and former head of the criminal division of the Department of Justice. And he said, I've met a lot of people who are Bitcoin skeptics, and I've met a people. I've met a lot of people who know a lot about Bitcoin, but I've never met someone that knows a lot about Bitcoin and is a skeptic. Now, one of the challenges that we have is you can't teach 
cryptocurrencies or blockchain technology in like a 15 or 20 minute briefing. You can't learn, really understand this technology in, in a, a full day study or even a month study. Like it, it's complicated stuff. And we have to inspire people to want to make that personal investment in themselves to read and understand and study and really take the time to, to understand how this technology works, understand what it is and understand what it's not. And we've made a lot of progress in doing that over the years. But one of the things that is hard is, you know, learning by doing is, I think, an important exercise. It's the best way I learn is by actually rolling your sleeves up, getting your hands dirty and just try, trying it out. The problem with something like cryptocurrencies is these are things of value. So uh, we can't go walk around DC or go walk around Capitol Hill and just start handing out cryptocurrencies to people. That would be- Biden and Obama were giving out crypto yesterday on Twitter. Did you see <laughs> yeah, that? Apparently so, yeah. We're, we're all set, we're all set. Yeah, so I think this year is actually a really interesting time. We're in an election year. As Kristen said, not a lot's going to happen because we're going into a lame duck session, but everyone's out campaigning. And I think we should be putting cryptocurrencies in the hands of the campaigns, in the hands of the members, and let them receive some, let them send some, let them receive a transaction. Everyone remembers the day they got their first crypto or their first uh, Bitcoin. It's, it's an impressionable moment in anybody's journey in this space. So let's do that for, for members of Congress. John, any, any thoughts on the education gap? Uh, yeah. You're, 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 in, you're in talking to people all the time. What, 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 are, what are the tactics and, and, and where do you think we are on that journey? Yeah, look, I mean, I think there's still a lot to be done. I mean, you know, there's certainly champions for the industry, but you can never have enough. Um, I do think one thing that's changed is you know, you don't necessarily have to explain how blockchain works to everyone because either they do get it or they have heard about it so much they don't want to pretend that they don't know what it is, so they just kind of let it go. Um, so I think that's that's been helpful. But I mean, look, in terms of like actually how to like get people's attention, you've got to be able to explain what this can actually do for them and their constituents, right? And so as much and as cool as a lot of these different applications are, you know, it's just not, it's not going to hit you know, the average member of Congress who's got all kinds yeah. of other things going. And so yeah. where we started, frankly, Jeremy, with payments seems to be kind of where we're looping now back around, yeah. you know, on the yeah. financial inclusion stuff and USDC and others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it seems like it. And uh, Kristen, I know I've, I've gone into various uh, members of Congress uh, uh, with you and, and sort of seen firsthand kind of where are people in, in, in that learning. Um, and one of the other things that's always interesting is sort of you know, obviously we have a very uh, partisan Congress. Uh, we have had a partisan Congress for a little while now. Um, and, um, and, and one of the big issues, and, and you know, for, for me at least is as a technologist, I look at digital currency as a completely nonpartisan issue, right? Blockchain technology, the internet, these, these, these are, you know, these are fundamental breakthroughs and, um, and, and they, they, they shouldn't be partisan. Um, but I still feel like on some of the subject matter, you really have, uh, you know, you, ha you have themes that are really important to the Democrats. You've got themes that are very important to the Republicans. And you've got, you know, very different, you know, audiences. You have a libertarian part of the Republican Party and you've got a law and order slash, you know, uh, you know focused on national security uh, area that crosses over into the Democrats as well. You've got the financial inclusion, and what are we doing for people who are who are underbanked, unprivileged, underprivileged, or, or, or yeah, underprivileged? Um, you know, 
Kristen, you know, how do we how do we cross the political divide here with digital currency issues in DC? Yeah, no, I I think that that there this should not be a partisan issue, um, and it it isn't um, it, it isn't necessarily partisan today. But I do think there are different messages that appeal to uh, different parts of Congress. So, you know, I think just to step back for a second and maybe tie together what Perry Ann and, and John were saying, I, I think there are three ways to get policy change in DC. One of them is through very strong relationships and being there and going to the Hill. Um, and the reality is a lot of relationships are built in political fundraisers. And so, yes, it's important for the community to um, support its champions and the people we want to be our champions um, because that that's, that's an important part. Um, I also think as John was saying before, uh, crypto needs to be more useful to people because today, you know, you have, look at your, your wallet and you have a, a some bitcoin in there but you know my that's my dad does that every day he gives me updates on the prices but he's never actually taken taken a crypto out of his wallet we're working just, on that working. <laughs> it's just sits in there so i think when something like usdc comes along um or or some of these other tokens that help with payments and people start realizing they can move things around that's great but the, the other the sort of the third prong that that can lead to policy change is messaging. And, you know, with the Democrats, we have had a lot of success by talking about financial inclusion. Um, we did a great event um, back during Black History Month when you could do events in person um, that was focusing on the financial inclusion issue and it was well attended by um, Democratic members of Congress. Um, but on Republican side, they tend to be more driven by U.S. competitiveness issues with China. Um, the Senate Banking Committee hearing is going to be holding a, a hearing on China next week um, to talk about these issues. Um, and also just um, supporting private sector innovation, supporting startups, supporting capital formation. These are sort of issues that Republicans tend to get more excited about. So I think at the end of the day, that can all get us to the same place where we want to have, um, you know, sound policies that, you know, make payments easier, that allow crypto projects to get up and running and started and all of the things that we want to see. But it's it's definitely a different conversation depending on which, which regulator, which policymaker we're speaking yeah. to. Yeah, for sure. I, I, it's been the last year in particular has been this 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 huge upgrade in the conversation. And again, we, we've touched on some of the things that have that have driven that, uh, you know, Libra, China, the pandemic, uh, you know, what's happening there, all this accelerating that I actually want to um, just focus in for a minute on one of those kind of tipping point issues, which was Libra is Libra, um, I think. Um, you know, there, there was a, a initial, let's just call it an allergic reaction to uh, to, to, to uh, some of the initial ideas and 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 the, the way it was sort of handled. Um, but it, it feels like uh, the Libra Association has, has pretty deftly adapted um, uh, their approach uh, at the at the supranational level with with the Swiss uh, government and and I think probably also with with the U.S. government, Singapore government, um, uh, other key governments really evolve that. Um, but, um, you know, I, I feel like the conversation around Libra is a, is a little bit of a proxy for the conversation around, you know, the acceptability of things like global stable coins, the idea that blockchains are going to be a mainstream payment infrastructure. It ties to things like what we're doing too. But um, 
you know, John, maybe you could comment a little bit on, you know, how has the conversation evolved around Libra um, in particular uh, on the Hill? Yeah, and I mean, to disclaim, you know, we advise Novi, which is the Facebook wallet um, that's going to be built on the, the Libra network. Uh, but look, I think to your point, we put out the white paper, the association took comments in, probably got maybe more comments than they expected, uh, <laughs> regulators across the world, um, but worked really hard to try and include them and represent them and uh, work with uh, policymakers. And they put out a, a, a second one just a month or two ago, and they're taking comments again. So, you know, it did certainly cause people to take notice because what had been discussed as theory, like what if Bitcoin will become so widely adopted that it could destroy the financial system to, wow, this network is going to be built and it could be implemented on day one to how many hundreds of millions of people. That really got people to, to go, get away from theory and start thinking more practically about it and caused literal nation states to start thinking about, okay, well, maybe we're behind the, the eight ball on what we should be doing with our own sovereign currency. So, you know, look, I think it's been a net positive uh, overall. I think it's gotten more people interested and involved than they ever would before understanding terminology and, and parts of the industry that they, they wouldn't have. Yeah, yeah it seems like that. Um, thoughts from, from uh, Perry Ann, Kristen? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think what was so amazing about watching that whole process is you know, Facebook released a white paper. They, they put out ideas, they put words on paper and the world had this huge, as you stated, an allergic reaction. There was a significant pushback and it created this catalyst of a conversation. We had the, the US Secretary of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, give a press conference on, on the project. It caused the first sitting president of the United States of America to start tweeting about cryptocurrencies. And while those responses came from a position of fear and skepticism, what it did was it forced some very important conversations to happen at a much higher level of government. And going back to what I was saying earlier about education and knowledge is one of our most important tools. It forced people to spend more time understanding this technology, what it is and what it's not. And where we are today is we have people in the highest levels of government who have a deeper appreciation for this technology. And we've been able to move the dialogue forward. And we're seeing that materialize in a very real way today in Washington and globally. Yeah. And Krista, I know you guys have been putting out more around stable coins, in particular, private sector innovation, um, public-private partnership, lots of ideas here. I, I feel like that whole dialogue has been upgraded uh, a lot. There's a lot more, you know, openness on these things. Um, you know, maybe you could just touch on some of the core positions that that BA has been taking around this topic. Yeah, no, I think for us, it's um, like Perry Ann said, it's educating about the terminology and the fact that there isn't one ideal type of dollar-backed stablecoin, but what we believe should be multiple multiple different ways to do it. I mean, I think USDC is a fantastic model, um, you know, in terms of having a reserve backed stable coin, but there are also some really interesting protocol driven stable coins that are out there um, that, uh, you know, have different features and, um, you know, we think that should be tested out in the marketplace and let people figure out how to use them. And so it's, it's really just letting letting people know that digital dollars exist. Um, there are, I think, some policymakers that think the U.S. is far behind and only only the Fed can 
allow for this type of technology to happen, but we can get all these same benefits by just having a really good sound policy that supports these, these different initiatives. So we've been talking about that. Um, we've also been trying to break down um, some of these root causes of, you know, why are people banked and unbanked? And a lot of the time it's because there's a lack of trust or the fees are just really high or there's not an, enough of a balance to, to do that. Um, Dollar-backed stable coins or do dollar-denominated stable coins can, can reduce these barriers. And there might not be off-the-shelf solutions that people are using every day to do that, but that those are under development and they're on the way. And then, um, you know, it's keeping pace with China. If, if we don't have the right regulatory environment or we take new regulatory actions that stifle innovation here in the U.S., China has a state-run plan and they're implementing it and they're, they're going. And we don't want you know, I think that the U.S. can stay competitive as long as we have the right environment to, yeah. to support that competition. I, I, I want to ladder off that for a second and, and, and really drill into that. Um, I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, right, the policymakers in Washington, th th they work for the American people. Uh, their job is to help, you know, build, uh, build the economy, create opportunities for people, uh, you know, bring people out of poverty, continue to give them uh, a good standard of living, um, enjoy economic freedom, um, all these all these sort of things. And clearly like blockchain is this unbelievable opportunity for global economic leadership, global technology leadership. I think the smartest people in the room understand that this is uh, like fundamental new infrastructure for how the world's gonna work over the next decade. Um, but in the US policymakers really seem to be much more focused on the risks, on upgrades to the legacy financial system or legacy financial systems issues. Uh, you know, whereas in China has been, has been noted, this is a front and center strategic national priority. As you said, it's from President Xi down, it's to every city, every mayor, every, uh, you know, every major financial institution they're all, they all have a blockchain strategy. There's just an unbe unbelievable amount of effort there. And it doesn't seem to be connecting uh, to, you know, to, to, to leadership on the policy side uh, in, in the US. And uh, I'd be interested in all of your thoughts uh, on that and, and how, we, how we can move the agenda. And, and by the way, I am not a, uh, you know, of the view that this is a US versus China thing at all. Uh, I, I, I certainly believe in, uh, you know, free market innovation, private sector innovation, open internet standards and open internet as a whole. Um, and, um, you know, I think the, the benefits of digital currency are inherently global. And this is about everyone in the world and bringing everyone in the world into a more inclusive financial system. Um, but, you know, the, the US plays a, a major role in this existing uh, world economic order. And, you know, th that order is being is being changed right now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the the perspective and the majority of the activities happening in Washington today around blockchain technology and digital currencies are about addressing the risk, where we're not having the other half of the conversation, which is which is realizing the benefits of this technology. And this is why at the Chamber of Digital Commerce, almost two years ago, we issued a national action plan for blockchain technology, where we have called on our national leaders in the United States to do just that, to put together an action plan, to put together a strategy on how we're going to lead in the development 
of, of blockchains globally. I think it's absolutely imperative for the United States, both economic and national security, to have blockchain technologies developed and built in the United States by US companies. And we must support the private sector's efforts to innovate with crypto and blockchains. Any other, any other thoughts on, on that topic? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it would be fantastic to have a coordinated approach. I worry that the government is not maybe its most functional at the moment right now. And so what we have to do is rely on the, the areas of support and the champions that we have to move the conversation forward. And I think that as we see greater consumer adoption and use of USDC and, and other, other cryptocurrencies, um, you know, I think I think that the markets can actually prove out and win this one. And and when it becomes some when the benefits become so obvious because people are using it every day, then that's when we'll see um, that's when we'll see the types of kind of comprehensive policy change we need. I, I wish we could have it on the front end. I really do, and I echo and support. Um, any efforts we can to make that happen. I'm just not optimistic in um, the current political environment that, that that's going to happen. But we can still make progress. Um, and and I hope that, you know, as, as new people cycle in and out of our government, that, that we can get that kind of leadership that we need. Yeah. John, any last yeah. words? Well, Kristen, I mean, Joe Biden's going to fix everything. Uh, as a good Delaware Democrat, I can tell you that. Um, but, but no, I mean, look, to echo, to echo what, what everyone said, yeah, certainly competitiveness with China is going to be a driving factor. I think, obviously, China is doing it for entirely different reasons, I would hope, than we are. Um, you know, lack of privacy is not the knock-on effect. It's perhaps the, the primary goal of, of that system. Um, but, you know, I, look, I, I think if you look back, and we've said this a billion times, uh, you know, the, what Clinton did with the Electronic Commerce Act and the Internet, was useful and it happened in part because of the things, Jeremy, that you said in your testimony, which I read and it's held up well, things that Jerry Brito has been saying well before he was a coin setter, that when you have open networks that allow people to communicate peer to peer, it is inevitable that it will grow and things yeah. will come of it. So if we accept that inevitability, everybody needs to come together and figure out how we're gonna nurture that innovation and then deal with whatever risks come up. Yeah, that's awesome. Well. Uh, I want to thank all of you for a really enjoyable conversation today. Um, uh, I, I can certainly say uh, with firsthand knowledge, we have come a very long way uh, in, in this period of time, and it seems to be accelerating, and uh, that's really exciting. And so I think in the next you know, two to three years, uh, we're going to see you know, probably 2x the progress that we've seen in the last seven years. And so uh, being on that curve is great, and you guys, uh, I know, are all uh, you know, playing a, a really pivotal role in, in shaping this as well. So thank you for uh, joining the conversation today. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank yeah, I mean, it does Thanks, feel Jeremy. like thank we've you. come a long way and it feels like we're just getting started at the same time. So I'm super excited about the future of the space. Totally. Awesome. All right, guys. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks, Jeremy. Great. Thank you. So uh, obviously right. some, some very exciting uh, you know, developments that are continuing to happen on the policy side and, and a lot of themes that uh, we've touched on here. And actually one of the major issues that was just touched on uh, that has actually vexed policymakers and regulators um, and is really fundamental to the growth and adoption of cryptocurrency and blockchains is 
these issues around financial privacy? Uh, and how can we be assured of our privacy with blockchain payments? Um, are there risks of government and, and law enforcement overreach? And you know, really on the flip side, what are the boundaries of financial privacy for individuals uh, and what risks do privacy preserving technologies pose to governments? Um, and then ultimately, you know, what about corporate and commercial privacy? Uh, public blockchains are these really transparent infrastructures. Uh, you know, how can a company or a business adopt this and not be at risk of, of disclosing private transaction activity as a firm? So, Next week, uh, we're going to be going deep, uh, doing a deep dive into digital currency, stable coins, and financial privacy with, I think, two exceptional guests, Jerry Brito, uh, founder and executive director of Coin Center, and who's uh, you know, one of the preeminent think tanks on digital currency and a firm that has done a lot of thinking on this topic. And Paul Brody, uh, a principal and global blockchain leader at Ernst & Young and one of the drivers behind the Nightfall project, uh, which aims to enable privacy-preserved payment transactions on Ethereum while also enabling trusted third-party audits. And so it should be a really interesting show next week. Um, uh, really enjoy today. Until next time, stay well, stay safe, and stay informed. Thank you.